Um, today, <clears throat> I want to take you back to the first Christmas. Right? Every time when we come together for Christmas celebration, we must never forget the original, the first Christmas revisited. And I'm pretty sure that you have heard of the Christmas story many times uh, before. But maybe today you may gain some new insights from the study of today. Okay. So Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 1:18 to 25. Let's read together. Now the of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, before we have this passage here from verse one, okay,、uh, Matthew one, verse one, all the way seven,、uh, to seventeen, it was actually the genealogy of Jesus. See, Matthew tries to portray Jesus as the king of the Jews, and his audience are Jews. And for a king to establish his kingship, the the lineage is very important. Where do you come from? Who are your descendants?、Uh, who are your ancestors? Are really really important. So Jesus,、uh, uh, Matthew started with Jesus's genealogy in verses one to seventeen, and this is how verse seventeen ends and conclude that he says, "So all the generation from Abraham." To David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is how it summarizes that genealogy. And have you noticed that it is fourteen generation and fourteen generation and fourteen generation? You know, when they talk about the genealogy, they don't always follow it logically and don't always follow it historically. There is the purpose to establish, and the key names are David, okay, David and Abraham, okay. Abraham is God's chosen people, and from Abraham it came all the way to David, which is the king of Israel. And from King of King David, prophecies has been made multiple times about a future king will reign in the throne of David forever and ever. So you see how this genealogy is being played out, is being put in a way that it is not exactly fourteen generations from Abraham to David. It is not exactly fourteen generations from David and to the Babylonian exile, but it was put in such a way that symbolically preparing Jesus the Messiah. And when they talk about the fourteen generations, you see two sevens. In there, and seven is a number which is rich in meaning to the Jews. Like to us, fifth and tenth 
are really important. Tenth anniversary, the church anniversary, your wedding anniversary. You tend to celebrate like you don't celebrate like two or seven. You make a big deal out of the fifth, out of the tenth. To the Jews, seventh is a big deal. God created the heavens and the earth and rested in seven days. It means perfection. And to see two sevens in the fourteenth generation, and then two sevens in the next, and two sevens, six sevens has been predicted. Now it is the climax. It is the goal. Now it's the seventh seventh. It is the perfection of the perfection. Jesus Christ, the Savior, will come. He is the ultimate hope of Israel. And that's why in the last phrase, it says, from deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generation, the Christ, none other than Jesus. You know, in many ways, the Jews feel that they are still in exile when Jesus was born. They, they were being oppressed by the ruthless Roman Empire. They were still in exile, even though they have returned to the land. And this is a welcoming news that the Messiah is here finally. That's a great news to them. So as we unfold the first Christmas, we can see that it started as an It started as an unexpected pregnancy in verse 18. Uh, without the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Okay? This is how it started. This is the original source that we can get. You know, in, in a world, in the age of fake news and, and cyber propaganda, uh, it is comforting to hear the Christmas story from the original source. A few days ago, uh, my identity was stolen. Someone stole my identity and create a Gmail, like firstbaptist210 at gmail.com and send emails to some pastors. I hope you didn't get my email from that firstbaptist210 at gmail.com. Anybody get that? Okay, except the pastors. A few pastors got that. And, and the messages, sign up as Pastor Albert Ting. Uh, uh, like, uh, I really need a favor from you. Please respond. Uh, I'm in an urgent meeting right now. Uh, I need to buy something. Can you help me to buy something? You know what they're trying to get at, right? And, and our pastors are smarter than that. They check with me. And of course, I didn't send those messages. Somebody stole my identity, okay? Impersonating me, sending emails, trying to get people to respond, maybe with credit cards or maybe with buying things, and then slowly lure them into a trap, a pit, you know, trying to get them. But here... Here, we have regional records of the first Christmas. And there is no confusion. This is how it happened. And today, we want to revisit that first Christmas. Okay, It says, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. You know, betrothal is a, is a big deal in, in Jesus' time. Um, it is an engagement but with legal, it's legally binding, okay? And the engaged couple, they did not come, to, they don't live together until the formal wedding and usually like six months, 12 months later. In a, in a big celebration, five, seven days and eating and drinking and, and just party together. Then they live together as husband and wife. And if you want to break off that engagement, if you want to break off that betrothal, you know, it takes a divorce to do that. That's how serious 
they take it 2,000 years ago on those betrothal. And clearly, it says uh, in the following verse that, uh, and, and, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You know, Matthew clearly wants to establish the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So it was very intentional. Before they get together, okay, so Jesus was not born out of the union of a man of a woman. It was the, not the union of Joseph and Mary. And Mary was not pregnant because of another man either, but it was from the Holy Spirit. He says clearly that when he was betrothed, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It is important. It is important because if Jesus was conceived by the union of a man and a woman, then he will be born in sin. With the human nature, he will inherit the human nature tainted by sin. And he will not be able to bear the sins of the world. He will not be able to stand in our place to go to the cross to bear the, the, the consequences of sin, to bear the penalty of sin on our behalf. And he will not be the Messiah of the world. It's important to establish that. So Matthew make it very clear that before they came together, okay, he, she was found to be pregnant. And where does it come from? She said, he said, it is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived through the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit hovered over the water in Genesis 1, that created the whole universe and the whole world, the Holy Spirit is initiating a new creation with this child in the body of Mary. And this is important. This is important to the Jews because after 40, 400 years of silence, meaning they didn't hear a lot of revelation from God, they did not hear a lot of prophetic voices, uh, spokesperson from God to tell them what happened, these years of uh, forsaking the Lord, of idol worship, of not pursuing and seeking the Lord after 400 years of silence. It seems that the Jews uh, uh, felt that God has forgotten them. But now, God is actively working out His plan of salvation for mankind through Jesus Christ. And how do you deal with an unexpected pregnancy? And what would Joseph respond to that? Verse 19 says he thought about a quiet settlement. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You know, of course, of course Joseph would suspect that Mary was unfaithful. Naturally. I mean, we are the readers of Matthew Gospel. We, we know the story. We know the in and out and you know, front and back. You know, We know exactly how it played out. So when we read them, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, a solution will come out later. But to Joseph, being one of those characters in the whole narrative of the birth of Jesus, he didn't know. So naturally, he will suspect that Mary was not faithful. Uh, uh, something happened that he didn't know. And he wanted to settle it quietly uh, to save her from public humiliation and disgrace and, and sometimes even execution. Uh, when it is found out. So Joseph has three options. One, he can do it publicly. He can proclaim that Mary was unfaithful and, and make, make it known to people. And she might face stoning 
uh, which may not be likely because by the time that it reaches uh, the, the time of, of Jesus' birth, uh, stoning was not common at all. But she may suffer some public shame if it is made known to the people. And secondly, uh, he can do it privately. So in the presence of two witnesses, he can give, give, he can give her uh, a, a letter of, of certificate of divorce and, and do it quietly. And nobody will know except a few people. And that would be helpful. And third option is he will, he will not do anything. He will just remain as engaged and not divorce Mary either. And that will make him an unrighteous person. He will be someone who will not be able to follow the Mosaic law that specifies in Leviticus chapter 20. So with all these options, Joseph's decision was the second choice, to do it quietly. Because he's a just man. A just man uh, is someone who wants to do what is right before God. It's someone who wants to fulfill the expectation of the law. That's Joseph. And he is unwilling to embarrass Mary. He wants to do it in a way to preserve her dignity, a good man. And he wants a win-win situation so that everybody can bring a closure to something he suspected that it might be her unfaithfulness. You know, trying to create a win-win situation is never easy. Uh, more likely, the scenario is either you win and the others lost, or the others win and you lost. But for Joseph, having considered all the parties involved, this is, this is a good plan. This is as good as it can be. It is a good man's plan to help to save everybody. But you know what? God has a higher purpose for Joseph. Sent through an angel in a dream to send him a message. So there's an angelic message in verses 20 and 21. He says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do you not fear to take Mary as your wife? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Three things the angel told her, told him. First of all, the angel told him, do not fear. Do not fear. You know, it takes courage. It takes a lot of courage to do God's will in our lives. It takes courage to tell the truth. It takes courage to be different. It takes courage to share the gospel. It takes courage to proclaim the gospel, and witness for Jesus. It takes courage to do the right thing. And where does that courage come from? You know, to me, courage comes from your convictions and the values based on God's word. That's where courage comes from. You know, it's like the, the, the prophets of old in the Old Testament. What gave them courage? to say something that people doesn't like to hear, to say something that people will rebel against, even stone them, even kill them, they proclaim this clear indication of the source of power, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And this is a saying of God. And that gave them courage. Courage comes from your convictions. It comes from the values based on God's word. That's where you find your courage. The angel told him, do not fear. 
do not fear. I don't know how many of you are fearful during this time. I don't know how many of you are fearful of a new year in 2020. But the angel told Joseph, do not fear. And secondly, the angel uh, told uh, Joseph that Jesus is conceived from the Holy Spirit. Again, affirming Matthew's saying in the previous verse that Jesus was conceived from the Holy Spirit. Okay, it is important. Uh, it is through the virgin birth that God chose to send His Son to become the perfect man and the perfect God. That's God's way of sending Jesus in this world as the perfect man and as the perfect God. It is important that He came as a virgin birth because then Jesus did not inherit sin. He was born holy when He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Luke chapter 1 verse 35 clearly states that, and the angel answered her, that's Mary, okay? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He will not inherit any human nature, any sin from human nature. He'll be born Holy so that He can be a sacrifice for us on our behalf, die on our place. When we believe in Him, then we can have reconciliation with God the Father. And thirdly, the angel told him the name of the Son. God named His own Son, Jesus. Jesus in Greek, but Joshua in Hebrew. It's the same name. It means Jehovah saves. Jehovah is salvation. And the purpose of Jesus' birth is to come and redeem us, is to come and save us from our sins. You know, it takes a lot of courage to accept the challenge. And no wonder the angel exhorted him not to be fearful, not to be afraid. Would you take up a challenge to achieve a higher purpose, even if it means to pay a steeper price in order to reach the goal? That's Joseph. To respond to a higher purpose. But the price is steep. Would you do that? Would Joseph do that? Well, we thank God that he responded with an act of submission. In verses 22 to 25, it says, And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, which means no sexual relations, knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, so it began with a prophetic fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel just means God is with us. See, when, when you receive Jesus into your heart, He is Emmanuel. He will be with you. But there's another consequence that if you re reject, if you reject the Emmanuel, if you reject the Savior, He will be a judge. He will be a judge to those who reject Him. You know, you can, you can commercialize Christmas. You can reduce it to a cultural event. Uh, you can even romanticize it sentimentalize it and make it really nice and beautiful. 
But you can't take away the consequence of rejecting the Savior of the world. No matter what you do with Christmas and how you celebrate, no matter from what perspective you look at Christmas, but you just cannot take away the consequence of rejecting the Savior of the world. You will face Him as a judge. He will be a judge to you instead of a Savior to you. You know, in Isaiah's time, in this prophecy, the nation Israel faced a significant threat from the Assyrians from the north. However, the birth of a child would demonstrate God's intention to save the nation from the Assyrian domination. And the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, reminded the Israelites that in the midst of a significant social transition, which is about to happen, but the community can live through the anxiety of transition because of Emmanuel, because God with us. And in the same way, the birth of Jesus signals that he will come again to rule the world and that the community, the Christian community, the disciples who follow Jesus can remain faithful even in the face of conflicts and chaos because of Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. As Christians, we have been reminded throughout the ages that Jesus is not just God with us, but also the living reminder that God is with us in times of deliverance and in times of suffering. Both God is with us until the end of the age. It began with a prophetic fulfillment. But secondly, we see Joseph's obedience. He followed exactly as the angel has proclaimed in a dream. He married Mary, and he did not knew her. He did not have sexual relations with her. Again, this is a clear, clear affirmation that Jesus was born out of the virgin. And he named the son Jesus, according to the angel's instruction. You know, Joseph responded exactly as the angel has instructed. He is a model of faithful discipleship. Even before Jesus has gave the disciples the great commissions, you know, to make disciples of all nations, we see a faithful disciple in Joseph. In a sense, he is almost like the first radical discipleship. Okay, because what he was asked to do, what he was instructed to follow, when he was willing to do God's will, was really radical. It wasn't easy. He paid a price for that along the way. You know, in a sense, the first Christmas was somewhat messy, right? It was, it was messy for Mary and Joseph. They have to deal with shame and scandal wanting to do God's will, but be ready to pay the price of obedience. If you look further from Mary and Joseph, it was even messier if you consider the oppressive political climate from the Roman Empire, the economic divides between the rich and the poor, the, the, the daily grinds, the loss of hope, the emptiness of spiritual life during that time. It was even messier than that. And 2,000 years later, as we come back to celebrate Christmas worship today, 
life is still messy. Sin has brought messiness in our relationships. We just don't know how to love each other well. We are confused about what is right and wrong more than ever, more than ever. That there is fear of the future of what AI will do to us and our jobs. And civilian cameras seems to be more and more, not only guarding the borders, but it's like everywhere. The fear of the future is very real to many of us. We love our iPhones, we love our smartphones, but we don't like all the tracking system built in there. That somebody will know where you are all the time, whether you add them into your friends and into your group or not. Somebody will know. And what did, what did they do with all the data? They know exactly what you will do. They know exactly what all the sites that you have visited. And then commercials comes, and then you know marketing apps, all this come and flooded your 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 phones, right? You just become a piece of a big data. I I, I you know don't you feel that way? Many of us just become a part of the big data, being collected for a purpose. And someone say, well, as long as you don't break the law, why should you be worried? Well, it's a great idea. So I I I'm all for it. Don't break the law. So they are all over, all this watching mechanism all around you, that's, that's wonderful. But who keeps civilian on those who have my data? Who keeps accountability to those who have my data? And make sure they use it wisely, make sure they use it legally, make sure they use it morally? You know, the more we thought about that, the more we get worried. The fear of a AI infatuating our whole world and civilian cameras in the name of violence and in the name of terrorism and in the name of catching bad people, uh, it seems to be installed more and more. That's future. But what about the reality? What about current reality? I think there's a lot of discontentment as well. So we are not happy now and we are worried about the future as we go into 2020 and beyond. Everything is changing at a pace that we can't even understand. Neither can we catch up. That's my generation. Younger generation, you guys can catch up and you guys understand what all this change is about. Me, it's like, what is that? You know, what are those things? Not, not to even talk about catching up. I didn't even understand even if I catch up. Messiness invades our homes, our marriages. They're all being redefined again. We don't even know what is the definition now. Invades our communities, invades our nation, invades our world. We are still messy today. Don't you feel like now as we live in this world, it's like nothing is right anymore. What is right? We don't even know. And it is in the midst of this messiness that Jesus came into our messiness in order to redeem us and transform us to be light and salt of the world until He comes again. Until He comes again.
That's the message I want to share with you today. Jesus came into our messiness in order to redeem us and transform us to be light and salt of the world, the Sermon of the Law series, until he comes again. Let me make two applications for you. One, is Jesus your Emmanuel? Do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ in your heart? Is Jesus your Savior or He's going to be your judge? Is Emmanuel, God with us, God with me, a reality for you or it is a distance dream or distance idealism? Maybe someday, not now, maybe someday. You know, when we talk about Christmas, we are really proclaiming that Christianity is a faith of revelation. Meaning, God seeking men and women. It is not through our efforts, it is not through our enlightenment, or our ways of trying to see God. No. When we talk about Christmas that Jesus came for us, we are talking about a faith of revelation that only God can reveal the mystery to us about God because we can't perceive and we can't understand God. There's not enough intelligence. There's not enough perceptions for us to know God. The, the, the chasm is too wide, impossible. The only possibility is God coming to seek us. To some of our youths here, the name of Jesus, salvation, the cross is, is almost your second nature, is your is in your DNA. But is Jesus your Emmanuel? Is Jesus only here? That you study, you grew up in Sunday school and learn all the Bible studies, you know all this? Or Jesus actually convicts you? And Emmanuel is in your heart. Some of us are collegians, either locally or from other states, you come back. You've been exposed to a very challenging environment, not very friendly to evangelical Christians. And you are exposed to all kinds of ideologies and like, wow, I never heard about that before. Wow, I didn't think of that perspective. Is Jesus still your Emmanuel after one year in college, after two years in college? Some of you young adults, you've been exposed not only to college, but to the office, to the work world, to, to, to competitions, to challenges, to office politics and things like that. You see people, you see human nature, and you are part of that. Is Emmanuel still real to you? Is Jesus with you in your marketplace? Is Jesus with you in your professional life? Does the Bible still inform you about how to be light and salt of the community, how to be light and salt in your boardroom, in your workplace? And some of us are middle-aged here and seniors. You have walked with Jesus for many years. Do you grow deep or it is a routine? Do you get to know Him intimately, personally, yearning for Him even more? Or it is just show up and get off kind of a faith for you now? That after, he after hearing the preaching for so many years, I mean, especially Christmas, you only have a few passages you can deal with. You know, it's like, of course I know this, right? It's a reiteration, it's a repeat. 
You know, how, how many more angles can you talk about Christmas? But you see your Emmanuel, even in your old age, even in your middle age, as you enter into empty nest and wonder, how do I live my second half of my life? Some of you here who are cultural Christians, your cultural Christians means Christianity is a culture. It's passed on for many generations. You just call yourself Christians, but you never know Jesus personally. You never walk with Jesus. You know that Christmas is for church. You come up, you show up in, in worship. You know, Easter, Easter is supposed to go to church. So you will be here on Easter. But generally, like, well, let's keep a safe distance, Jesus. You, you do your own thing, I'll do my own thing. Okay, let's, let's be friends, but keep a distance. Cultural Christians, never receive Jesus into the hearts. The Emmanuel is for somebody else. The Emmanuel is for my past generations, but not for me. I'm okay, I'm happy. Could that be you? Could that be today that Emmanuel can actually happen within you, in your heart, that God is with us, He is with me? And I wonder in our midst, could that be seekers? Like, what is this Christianity all about? What is this Christmas all about? I just want to hear a Christmas story. I want to hear the, the original, the first Christmas story and see how it started 2,000 years ago. That's how it happened. We just talked about the first Christmas. And to tell you that the Emmanuel can be in your heart as well. He can be your savior or he can be your judge. How would you respond? Secondly, I want to talk to the Christians. Be faithful until he comes again. See, as Pastor Henry uh, prayed in his prayer, you just can't dwell in the first Christmas. We've got to move on. Jesus grew up. So to, to move from first Christmas and, and to move to the Good Friday, where he died for the sins of the world. But you can't stop at that either. You've got to move on into Easter Sunday, where Jesus rose again. Because if Jesus did not rise again, then he was overcome by sin. He was overcome by death. For the wages of sin is death. But Jesus rose again. He overcame sin. He overcame death. So that he can be the savior of the world. So that he can be the Emmanuel. But don't dwell at that either. As Christians, as we live our lives, let's move into another stage. Let's anticipate the second coming of Jesus again. He came for the first time and he said, I will come again and he will come again the second time. Because during Christmas, we gave Jesus Emmanuel the titles of Prince of Peace. Where is peace? His eternal father. But where is peace? We hardly see peace in this world. Sometimes not even in our own family. Sometimes not even in the church because we fight. Where can we find the Prince of Peace? Where is that reality? Is that just, just trying to cast optimism into our lives or is it real? People, you've got to move from Easter and move into the stage of waiting for the second return of Jesus Christ where he will rule the world, where there will be no more tears and sins and sufferings, 
and that's when perfect peace, complete peace will be restored. That's when we'll be able to be with Jesus. That's when Emmanuel will be forever and ever and ever. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the message of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. He says, And I heard a loud voice from a throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, in eternity, Emmanuel, forever and ever, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The old earth will pass away, and he will create new heavens and new earth. That's when perfect peace will come to us. You see, every year we proclaim that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but we just don't see, we don't feel it, some portion of it, a little bit here and there. But where is peace? There is, will be peace when Jesus comes again and establishes his own kingdom, establish the new heavens and new earth, and there will be no more tears and no more death and no more crying and no more pain because all the former things will pass away. So that's why today we want to call on Christians, don't just live in the first Christmas and sentimentalize it, commercialize it, culturalize it. Go beyond that. You've got to move to the Good Friday and Easter, but don't stay there either once you have encountered Jesus on Easter Sunday and say, Lord, live in my heart, but move to the next stage and say, Lord, I am anticipating eagerly your second return. You promise you will come again. That's when the Prince of Peace will fully realize that peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. And that's what he's calling us to do today. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you. We just want to thank you as we revisit the first Christmas, reminding us, reminding us to be faithful until you come again, reminding us that you are the Emmanuel, Emmanuel in our hearts and Emmanuel in our lives. Father, I pray, I pray that we'll be prepared and we'll be vigilant. Father, I pray that you will allow us to reflect on Jesus the Emmanuel, whether he's our savior or whether he will be the judge. But I pray that today as we lift up the name of Jesus, as we retell the first Christmas story, that we will all be aligned with God's intention that Jesus came into our messiness in order to redeem us and transform us to be light and salt of the world until he comes again. Yes, until he comes again. In Jesus' name, amen.